Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot, and I will be your host for today's episode. I'm really excited about today's episode because I have with me a special guest, Arvind, who is the scientific director of Water Farmers Aquaponics. I know very little about aquaponics, but I'm excited to learn today, and I hope you guys are excited to learn along with us. So welcome, Arvind. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So just to start us off, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about who you are, um, what you do, and 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 what is Water Farmers? Oh, certainly. So, uh, well, Water Farmers is an aquaponics design consulting company. So we do an end-to-end uh, commissioning, uh, turnkey solution, uh, commercial-style aquaponics, if you may. Uh, we have operations in about 10 different countries across the world, all the way from Australia to uh, back in our backyard in Ontario. So uh, this that's what we do. We design, put together fish systems with greenhouse horticulture systems at different ranges, low-tech, mid-tech, high-tech, depending on what the application demands. And we have good fun at it. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so Arvind, can you tell me a bit more about yourself and what, what does the scientific mm-hmm. director do? Right. So we, I'm one of the founding members of Water Farmers. And where we started that concept is we wanted to bring together different sizes, different scales of aquaponic systems. And aquaponic systems have, have sort of thrived in uh, backyard systems with tinkerers in, in, in the academic piece of things. And to a certain extent, it has also found its way into small, medium enterprise. But we wanted to bring together in, in, a, in, in a way where we can sort of showcase it with hydroponics, if you may. So large commercial operations like in a Dutch style greenhouse. And the only way to do it is if we manage to hit the sort of production numbers we're looking for. Typically, aquaponics is done in a ratio of, say, one, where one, one is to three, where one is your vegetable production, your fish production, and three is your vegetable production. And that's the ratio of production that's usually considered a safe operating point and what we wanted to do is we wanted to push that more on an even scale where we can bring it to at least two to three or three to four and by maintaining those ratios you make it an attractive business opportunity for even people getting into it so that's the that's our model and that's the way we wanted to get into aquaponics and make that work for everyone else that counts on us to make it work for them right okay oh man i have so many questions um this is really interesting. So when you say um, commercial uh, in terms of scale, and remember, most of our listeners are probably like me who don't know much about aquaponics. So um, what kind of scale or size would are you talking about when you say a, like a commercial aquaponics grower? So our typical sizes range within, say, two to five acres uh, under okay. greenhouse. And the largest we have built so far is about 10 acres on the greenhouse. 
That said, we do operate in the one acre range and the half acre range. I know we've built, we've scoped a few projects uh, in Ontario uh, for uh, all year production uh, in the size of say 20,000 square feet, which is about half an acre. And that's sort of a family run operation. So we operate in that range too. But when we say commercial, we are talking two to five acres. That's usually our sweet spot when things okay. get interesting. Yeah, I'm sure that's really neat. Um, and so where, I mean, I do know a bit about it and, and, and understanding, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, we're talking about fish, we're talking about growing in water. Mm-hmm. Um, but for our listeners, can you kind of describe or paint a bit of a picture of what an aquaponics system looks like? Um, and then maybe talk a bit about why that design is, you know, where are those efficiencies and, and why is that sort of something you guys are striving for? Mm-hmm. Certainly. Uh, so what, what is aquaponics? That's, that's the, I guess, the miracle question right there. And why does it work so wonderfully? Uh, aquaponics starts with a fish cycle. So it's basically the bringing together of a recirculating aquaculture system that, that has uh, existed independently uh, for, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And a, a horticulture greenhouse system, which has also ex- existed independently for a very long time. And the way we bring this together is like you can envision a, a miniature STP plant, a sewage treatment plant uh, that we typically use for uh, cities. If we take that, bring that down to scale and use it for fish. So when we feed fish protein rich feed, keep them in a highly oxygenated environment in running water, we're able to uh, give them a stress-free environment where they start doing what they do best, which is digestion. And uh, they focus less on reproduction in that case, because in in the wild, when they're threatened with either scarcity in food, water quality, or oxygen, they get into reproduction. So reproduction is a way of self-preservation, and that's how fish usually operate. And if you you give them the environment where they're they're comfortable and feel less threatened, and they they don't have to worry about predation, uh, amongst the other things that they do worry about, you put them in an environment of low stress, you'd automatically get them into digestion mode. When you get them into digestion mode, their feed conversion ratio improves. Uh, and when their feed conversion ratio improves, you know you can get a kilo of fish for every kilo of feed you put into them. That way, you're able, when you get them in digestion, obviously the resultant of digestion is a lot of excretion. And when we have a lot of this excretion, the fish is a very unique animal in that way, uh, where the manure that you get out of the fish is uh, water-soluble in nature. Just naturally, it is water-soluble because fish live in water. They're an aquatic species. And because of that, when you when you extend that theory to plants, uh, plants usually uptake water-soluble fertilizers. You could have granulated fertilizers, but you still need to irrigate them with the water for them to dissolve, for the plants to then uptake. So the medium of communication for plants is water. Water. Even in the soil, that's what it is. So we, you, if you can magnify that efficiency to a scale where the communication between the nutrient and the plant is a lot is a lot better and a lot higher, which means the plant's roots are existing in water. And we use these naturally soluble uh, sources of nutrition. And be, believe you may, it is, uh, if we actually do a chemical uh, analysis of fish uh, excreta, it contains nothing but nitrogen and phosphates in excess and a lot of organic carbon and also trace elements, depending on the quality of the feed that you're using, of magnesium and calcium and potassium. 
if you actually now look at this, this is now your NPK calcium magnesium iron. This is what plants require as macro and micronutrients. So now when you put this together, you see you've almost got eight out of nine elements that you need already for the plant. And if we're having it in a naturally soluble condition, you're talking of a very high efficiency of exchange between these nutrients and the plants. So now if we can put this into an STP plant, accelerate their breakdown, because we have to ionize them as much as possible for food safety concerns. We don't want it to be directly exposed to the manure. So now you have this STP plant that breaks it down further, ionizes all of these nutrients that are available in the fish excreta and makes it available in an irrigation system to plants. And then there's just the magic of putting together the absorption ratio of the roots to the exposure ratio of the water that's traveling past the roots. So if you can get that right for each crop, you have a very good system that's recirculating. And better yet, usually for aquaculture systems, the biggest overhead is freshwater. And the moment you, you bring the plants into the picture, they, they demineralize the water or deionize the water. So at the end of this uh, horticulture cycle, the water that's coming out is essentially freshwater grade for the fish. So you have one eco-friendly recirculation system, which takes away the disadvantage of fish farming, which is a high freshwater overhead and takes away the, the uh, overhead for horticulture, which is the expensive fertilizers. And you put them together in a recirculating loop and you have something fantastic that takes place. Wow, very cool. I, yeah, this is so neat. I, I love the fact that it's, um, you know, that it's a close, it really is a, a looped system, right? So that mm -hmm. that very, very cyclical yeah. or circular um, system. So that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining Arvind, and I could be wrong. So when you're mm -hmm. saying, um, you know, you're talking about location. So is this something, right. so I have two, two questions. My first question would be, um, mm -hmm. you know, where are those greenhouses located? Are they typically um, next to a freshwater body or is it something where they're located, um, mm -hmm. you know, on the land and the water, you know, is, is piped in or has a well? I guess, what does the location of, of this type of system typically look like? So the, the best place to locate a greenhouse that requires a lot of water, like uh, an aquaponic system does, is to have greenhouses located near aquifers. That said, um, if you actually look at the quantum of water that uh, we use to produce, say, every 100 kgs of produce, it is almost 90% lesser than what you would consume if you grew in the soil. So it's actually only using 10%. There's no magic in it, though. There's a little bit of logic. It's because of its closed-loop nature that we're able to keep the water from running away into the environment. Like in the fields, for example, you could irrigate the plants, but you just assume you're irrigating them when the plants actually require it. But most of the time, actually 90% of the time, we're just letting it run off into the environment. Having the closed loop and having these uh, the setup in tanks and having this water sort of encapsulated into this uh, man-made system, if you may, you have a situation where uh, the water doesn't have the chance to run off and the plants uptake the water only when they need it. And you don't have to guess or double guess when they're actually going to require it. They just take it up because they're living in a water medium anyway. Okay. And uh, that's how we're, that's how, that's the water scenario there. But uh, <laughs> the most surprising thing is our farms uh, across the world are located in places where the soil is almost close to uh, impossible to cultivate and the water is a very scarce resource. So you're looking at arid lands and 
uh, drought drought infested areas and these are the places that want to get out, get into this sort of a cultivation method because they feel the little water they have they can actually conserve and use it in a wise manner okay cool interesting yeah because so that is not what i i sort of had envisioned um so because right. of yeah because of that closed loop system it's not like you necessarily have to be um you know in an area where water uh you know is a is a a highly available or easily accessible um product right. so yeah that's that's really interesting mm -hmm. so i i'm imagining as well you know this is something um you know food security is 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 a challenge in so many regions across the globe um is this type of of system and and from your guys's experience is it something that could also be implemented um you know at the community level so if if, if the community was kind of eager to produce food on their own you know is it something that is accessible for you know a community scale project or is it really um you know that large commercial scale where it makes the most sense or it, can it be a bit of both oh it can it the perfect thing about aquaponics is it can be scalable at any level and any level of complication that you that we may want to get into because it's a natural cycle we're not intervening into much of how the system operates by itself. Uh, you, you, all you need is to facilitate that process, that process of conversion of um, fish excreta into nutrition and the reverse filtration to the plants. But you just need to facilitate it in some simple way or, or a complicated way. That's entirely up to us, which brings us to the point where we have this enormous flexibility where we can scale it up to any proportion that we need. And, uh, well, to our credit, if I may, we have uh, developed some community scale projects in Ontario here, especially with the Mennonite communities, where they're sort of being self-sufficient. So they sort of, they they do a cooperative style uh, cultivation with their with this greenhouse that they have. Uh, so the community participates in both the cultivation, the harvesting, and the running of the place, and they distribute the produce that comes out from the between the uh, the, the family members that that are there in the community. So it's it is very possible. Okay. To sort of uh, supplement or compensate uh, with the, such uh, communities that sort of uh, dwell on self-sustenance in a sustainable style of living. So it, it, in, in the winter months, you have something that can sustain your community uh, and uh, it can be then transposed in, into any urban scape, for that matter of fact, where you have a community that's self-sustaining from it. Right. And the best okay. part is you get your proteins as well as you have your vegetables. So it's both in one growing system. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, you know, I'm thinking about applications where so so my my background mm. is actually in energy and renewable energy, and I work a lot with northern right. and remote communities. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about uh, well, I mean, you guys are in Ontario, so, so you know, it is Canadian. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about cold climates and, and sort of what the added challenge mm -hmm. of the system is when we're in a cold climate. Right. The biggest challenge is the snow load, designing greenhouses to bear a snow load, because a greenhouse is essentially a lot of open space because you want the light to come in as much as you like. And having the, having these big panels of either glass or polycarbonate supported on extended periods uh, pieces of steel rebar is essentially the biggest challenge. 
last week, uh, the Netherlands had record snow and two, two hectares of greenhouse collapsed under the snow. And these are these are greenhouses that are built over huge areas with a with significant amount of engineering that's gone into it. So it's it's very very difficult to which is why the greenhouse hub of Canada is in Leamington, Ontario. It's the southernmost tip of Canada, and they do it there because that's as far as they can go and avoid the snow. Uh, it still snows, and they still get into trouble every so every now and then. But that's at least the least part of resistance. That said, it is possible to go in to build a warehouse and grow under lights or right. go for a passive solar greenhouse. The passive solar greenhouse structure has a little more robustness to it, but then there's the cost aspect. So it's it's a trade-off between either or, but it is definitely possible to do it in, in very cold conditions and keep it self-sustaining because the technology is there. Uh, mind you, it's not a question of whether the technology is there or not. It's just a question of how much can be spent on it for a size of a project. If we go for a sizable project, say 10,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet, then it makes sense. But if we go too small, say 1,000, 2,000 square feet, then you're looking at a very high cost per square foot construction. Right. Okay. Yes, so that makes sense. Step. Yeah, yeah. Snow load mm -hmm. and then obviously you know, keeping a building made of glass warm is also challenging. So I'm sure you right. know, the cold, yeah, yes. the colder it gets, the more robust the structure itself needs to be. So yeah, that's very interesting. Certainly. So do you have any um, statistics you can share with us around, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I guess I'm curious about uh, an equivalent square footage between, uh, you know, what I grow in my regular garden, um, versus mm. you know so it just regular plants in the soil annuals being harvested versus a regular greenhouse versus a aquaponics style system um you know what are some of the major mm -hmm. differences in terms of production you're seeing um between those concepts oh for sure uh, this is something that we try to document as much as possible because it's of interest to uh, to us as well as practitioners so if we do regular soil farming that's exposed to the environments, tomatoes, for example, they're the most, I guess, you could see the distinct difference in production there. And that's the reason why we benchmark it for the tomatoes. Also, that tomatoes are the most popular commercial crop. Uh, so when you grow it in the soil exposed to the environments, you're looking at anywhere between, say, 15 to 30 kgs per square meter per year. So that's the metric we use. So a square meter of plantation um, per year will give you about 15 to 30 kgs. You drop a greenhouse on it and automatically you've provided it a lot of protection. And if you have a good fertigation system, you kick the 30 up to 50, maybe 70 kgs per square meter per year and bring in a more sophisticated fertigation system like aquaponics, a natural fertigation system. You can take those numbers up to 100, 110 kgs per square meter per year. Now, bring in a more sophisticated version, hydroponics, where I can really dial down the nutrients to the exact specific amount, albeit it's going to be chemically driven. It's not organic or natural for that matter. But if, if we can really dial in the chemicals and dial in the nutrient sources and perfectly time it through the life cycle of the crop, it is not impossible to hit 200 kgs per square meter per year. Okay. So wow. the possibilities are, are, are that far. So... You have your 30, then you have your 50 to 70, 100, and then a 200. Right. Okay. And really what you're talking about is 
um, you know, creating a climatic environment that is is more catered towards that specific plant, as well as creating a nutrient transport environment that's specifically catered to to that crop as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting. And um, yeah, I'm so curious about this. So, what species of fish are typically involved, or is is there like a preferred? Is there a favorite species of fish for for aquaponics? There is, there is a favorite based on ease, ease of operation. That's tilapia. And that's the only reason why the fish is chosen because it's a very hardy fish. It's very, it's very adjusting to mistake. It has, it's very forgiving that way, which is the reason why it's the most popular fish for tank culture in, in, in general, which is why we see heaps of it in the market, uh, especially in terms of volume. Rainbow trout, uh, surprisingly, if you, if you want to consider Canadian fish, rainbow trout is a fish that does really well in tanks. And it's been very well documented by the aquaculture industry as well. It's, it's a very forward progressing uh, knowledge piece. And there's a lot of innovation that supports the culture of rainbow trout. It's not impossible to do rainbow trout culture in tanks now these days, uh, commercially successfully as well. Uh, Canada produces a lot of feed for rainbow trout, very advanced feed. And uh, we don't even have to go into the genetic modified strain to get a decent size production. So you can, when you start doing tank culture, um, you obviously don't want to get into the sizes of two kg, three kg size fish that you'd probably catch in the rivers or the bays around here. But you want to be on a plate size because that's what you're looking to take to the market. Because it's even for the market, it's easy to it, you sell a plate size fish. And for the cu customers as well, they want to buy a plate size fish because you put it in the oven, get it out, and it's it's ready to go. It's a meal by itself. So that size, so the one kilo size of rainbow trout is great to turn around. You can turn it around in about a year, starting from a fingerling. And that's typically considered a good turnaround point for cold water fish. Arctic char are being, in, being increasingly um, interesting these days because uh, I believe there are a couple of universities in Canada that have actually done a lot of studies on how to uh, domesticate Arctic char. And that's a very interesting fish because it's, it's one degree up on, sal on salmon and it, it, it can also be bred in captivity and it's, it's quite interesting these days. These are two cold water fish that are gaining popularity. Lake sturgeon, smoked lake sturgeon sells for an arm and a leg. So uh, that's something that's very popular. But again, sturgeon culture is something that is a little more complicated than other fish in general. Um, but I guess sturgeon have always come with that bit of romance with them, uh, which is why growers have always been a little attracted towards the sturgeon story. But on a commercial scale, on, on a safe commercial scale, trout and Arctic char are good cold water fish that have been well documented in the recent past. But other than that, any warm water fish uh, that does well in freshwater typically grows in a freshwater environment like your catfish, um, tilapia, carps, uh, well, any of the bass. Uh, so in the U.S., they've developed a hybrid bass. They, I mean, they didn't, they stumbled upon a hybrid bass, which has, actually has parentage in both saltwater fish as well as freshwater fish. This is called the hybrid striped bass. Uh, this sort of, yeah, this is one of those animals that sort of adapted themselves into uh, into evolution in in dams because they got trapped off from reaching their oceans, and they start just started brooding in the dams, and there you have a hybrid fish that is found there. The hybrid striped bass is a very, a very unique fish because it's a freshwater fish that tastes like seawater fish. So you mm. have that seafoody sort of texture. Uh, yeah. So it, it comes with its its fair share of advantages that way. It doesn't taste like uh, a muddy freshwater fish, if you may. 
Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, that's the advantage. So there are some interesting species. Uh, the barramundi. Australia is actually quite blessed with uh, several freshwater species varieties. They have a sleepy cod. They have barramundis, jade perch, couple of perches, silver perch. Um, so those are very, very uh, attractive fish uh, to cultivate as well. But again, that's very uh, continent specific. Here in Canada, rainbow trout, Arctic trout, very, very used to the climate, uh, very climate friendly. You're not looking to heat up the water to because they, they like to be within 15, 16 degrees uh, water temperature. And that's something we can maintain year round pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's very interesting, the, the species and, and how that all works too. Um, my last kind of question for you, Arvind, is sort of personal, but also I feel like a few of our listeners are probably curious about this at this point. Um, right. So someone like me who, you know, I, we mm-hmm. love fish. We, we have, we have mm-hmm. land space. We live rarely. Um, is there right. any version? Mm-hmm. And I mean, you said scalable, but I'm curious about the applicability of this type of system for um you know an individual or a, a family sized grower mm-hmm. um you know is there systems like yeah. that that exist and how would that work and, and and what would that look like okay you can actually do if you're looking for we call it the dwelling size it basically okay. means it can feed a family and some yeah, that's the dwelling size unit is usually between 5,000 to 10,000 square feet, uh, depending on how much fish you want to produce. Uh, some people like to produce a little more than others, and some just want to have fish a few days a week. So uh, depending on that metric, you can go to about 5,000 to 10,000 square feet. It's a very compact system. It's very manageable. You only need one or two people at the most to manage the system. And uh, it, it can be fairly done. It's a polycarbonate greenhouse, comes with LED lighting. You'll have your tanks. Uh, you'll be producing a combination of greens. The beauty is the production area is divided by styrofoam boards. And you could have a, a type of green on a single board. And you could have that patched right through. So you seed on one side, transplant, uh, harvest up the other. And it's, it's like it's almost a continuous cycle. And you just keep replenishing what you've already harvested. And right. it's it's fairly doable. It's actually a very easily doable option. It's it's not okay. very difficult. Wow. Okay, that's really interesting. So, and I, I want to make sure people know a little bit about how how to find you and where they can learn more. So, um, you know, if if people are curious after mm-hmm. listening to this episode, um, you know, where's the best place to find you and, and learn more and and chat with you guys about these systems? Certainly. Uh, well, we have our website that's on there, like everyone else in this world, uh, <laughs> www.waterfarmers.ca. It's a plural. Uh, and uh, if, if ever anyone has any questions, our tech team is, is quite friendly and they're always on the job. Uh, team at waterfarmers.ca. That's where people send their questions and queries. Anything from where can I find my fish feed in my location? Do you have a recommendation for suppliers to can I get a system that can be put in my backyard? Do I want to get into farming? Can you guys help us? The, the whole whole nine yards, that's where we are. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Arvind. I'll be sure to um, include the link to your guys' website and, and that email address in the show notes so people can reach out to you. Um, but thank you so much for, yeah. for being with me on the podcast today. I learned. My pleasure. Um, yeah, I learned so much. So thank you. I'm glad it was useful. Thanks. 
Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, as well as Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. For a full list of episodes, as well as more information about Sage, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions. Catch you next time.